Good morning, church. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. Mine's in the room today, and I'm so thankful for my mom's impact on my life, and I know we're all thankful for the impact of our mothers on this in this church. Um, will you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 uh, this morning? I'm excited to study God's Word with you today on Mother's Day. If we haven't met, my name's Liam Hardy, and I have the privilege of serving here as worship pastor. We're in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you're probably getting the hint that we're going to be in Ephesians 1 for a few more weeks. And that's a good thing, uh, because this is a theologically rich passage of Scripture. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he is telling us about the incredible beauty of the gospel. And he tells us about the power of the gospel by listing some of the results of the gospel. What are the, or what are the three first words in this book? Paul, an apostle. Saul, the murdering Pharisee, is now Paul, the apostle, writing the New Testament and planting churches. Gospel transformation. And then he's writing, he says in uh, verse 2, to the saints in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was known for having all kind of blatant, sinful pagan practices. And there's a church in this city. There's a group of people living counterculturally for the glory of God in Ephesus. Gospel transformation. And then he launches in verses 3 through 14, just unfolding this beauty of the gospel, telling us how the gospel works in audience. Uh, and what Paul is teaching us here is that the gospel is a Trinitarian work. The gospel is a Trinitarian work. What do I mean by that? Our God is Trinity. We worship one God who has revealed himself to us in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's showing us the roles of the Trinity um, in the redemption of man. In verses 3 through 6, last week, Dustin highlighted the ministry of the Father. This week in verses 7 through 10, we're going to highlight the ministry of the Son. And where do you think we'll be next week? We'll finish the passage, 11 through 14, highlighting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And church, we got to remember that this Trinitarian work of redemption is the story of the Bible. Right? The story of the Bible is not just a history of the nation of Israel or a collection of cool stories that we tell our kids. The story of the Bible is God's redemptive plan. And so when we study this passage and we study the Bible, we just get to pull back the curtain and see God's heart for people. Now, church, I will tell you, confess to you, I'm a worrier. That's one of the worst things about my person, my, my personality. I'm a worrier. Maybe you are too. The thing that worries me the most about my worry is that it's not getting better with age. I feel like my worry is growing. I just have more responsibility maybe in my life, and then I start worrying about more things. And when we are in the midst of a good worry, we would ask for a solution that would be a quick and easy fix, just a deliverance from that circumstance, and then I won't worry anymore. Let's say just, for instance, I was worried about finances. I was worried about, so I had some money issues or some money worries. Well, what would be the solution to that worry? Well, Lord, just let me win the lottery, right? If I had $100 million, then I wouldn't worry. What if I worried about something that stemmed from my insecurity? Like I saw an event or a, or a task or a mission that I had in my near future, and I was afraid I was going to fail that task or fail that mission. I'd say, Lord, just make me smarter, make me stronger, make me more likable, more successful. Give me the skills I need to fulfill that next thing. This is the kind of thing that we would want in the midst of our worry. But I've learned that worries are kind of like appetites. You may ruin one, but there's another one coming right behind it. I think for many of us, we know we have a deeper issue than just the circumstance when we worry. 
And church, I believe that we worry and we fear and we cannot feel at peace with our lives because we have a low view of who God is. We believe that God is something less than who he has told us he is in his word. And that's because we construct a view of God based on circumstances and other people rather than constructing our view of God from his word. We do not let God tell us who he is. And as a result, y'all, we ask a thousand different questions. How could a good God allow COVID? Is God real? How can God judge the world and show grace to me? Am I really saved? And at the heart of those thousand kinds of questions we ask about the character of God, what we're asking is, is he trustworthy? Is he really worthy of his name? I worry, I stress, because I am biblically illiterate, and therefore I cheapen the character of God. But church, when we come to his word, and we let him speak for himself, I promise you we will not be disappointed with what we find. That we come to his word humbly and say, Lord, I don't know you like I ought to know you, but I want to know you on your terms, church. We will not be disappointed. But what will happen is as we study his word, our view of God will begin to elevate. And it is hard to worry. It is hard to fear when you are picking your jaw up off the ground because you are standing in awe of how amazing our God is. When we see how glorious and how great he is, our Fear and our worry begins to fade. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon, The Immutability of God, said this, Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief, so speak peace to the winds of trials as a devout musing on the subject of the Godhead. Paul is writing to a church in a sinful, secular city, a hostile environment. And he's saying, if you want to have peace, if we're going to stay on mission, we have got to have an enormous, huge, big, can't exaggerate view of God. And in verses 3 through 14, Paul says, let's go for a swim in the immensity of God. Church, and we have a choice today. Either we're going to have big problems or we're going to have a big God. So let's look at the son's work in verses 7 through 10. Church, I promise you, we will not be disappointed with what we find. We're going to read 7 through 10. I actually want us to read verses 3 through 10, kind of get a running start into our passage today. And we said in the Greek that this is one sentence, so I think that's fitting to do. I want to do something as we read this passage that might feel a little bit clunky. We said that this passage is telling us about how the work of the gospel is a Trinitarian work, right? One God who saved us, absolutely, working in three complementary persons of the Godhead. And so in this passage, there are some pronouns. There are some he's or some him's in this passage. And if, you, if I asked you who that was, you could take the easy way out and you could say, well, that he or that him is God. And you would be right. But as we go, I want us to define the pronouns to what person of the Godhead is Paul talking about here. And as we do this, I think we're going to see the complementary roles of the Father and the Son in bringing salvation to us. Does that make sense? Verses 3 through 10, we're going to define the he's and the hymns. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, 
God the Father. In love, he, God the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, God the Father, according to the kind intention of his, God the Father's will, to the praise of the glory of his, God the Father's grace, which he, God the Father, bestowed on us in the beloved, Jesus Christ. In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his, Jesus Christ's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his, God the Father's grace, which he, God the Father, lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he, God the Father, made known to us the mystery of his, God the Father's will, according to his, God the Father's kind intention, which he, God the Father, purposed in him, Jesus Christ. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, that you did not just put us down on this planet to do life alone, but you, God, you have given us the revelation of yourself. And you tell us of your plan that began before the world was created to redeem humanity. So, Father, I pray as we gaze at the beauty of the sun this morning, Father, that you would guide us into truth. You would protect us from error and misunderstanding. God, you would give me the words to speak. We just want you to be glorified in this place. Father, would you elevate our view of you this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, we're starting in verse 7, and I, I got three points. They're really more of three headings um, that are going to have uh, to kind of guide our, our time this morning. The first thing that I see, though, in verses 7 that I want to talk about is first, talk about the ministry of the Son. I see our sin apart from Christ. I think this is the first thing that we have to talk about um, when we talk about the ministry of the Son. Last week in verses 3 through 6, Dustin told us that the Father had a plan before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us to adoption, that he chose us and said, I'm going to redeem them. And God had a plan for his church. And notice what it says here for us in verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God's plan is for the bride of Christ to stand before the Father and for us to be holy and blameless. So how are you doing in, in that regard? Standing before God, holy and blameless. We all know that we have fallen short of that standard. And so when we start talking about the ministry of the Son, we recognize that the Father sent the Son to deal with my sin. So first, I want us to talk about our sin apart from Christ in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Paul gives us two descriptions of the type of a sinful nature in the state we were in before Christ. First, he says that in Christ we have redemption. What does that word mean? What does it mean to have redemption? This word would have been used in this culture um, to talk about slavery. Um, to redeem someone was to buy someone out or free them from slavery. And now whenever slavery was mentioned in a relationship to the nation of Israel, the Israelites would have thought back to Exodus when the people were enslaved in Egypt. At the end of the book of Genesis, we're told that Joseph rises to power in Egypt and Jacob's family settles in the land of Goshen in Egypt as honored guests in the country. This is the way the book of Genesis ends. 
And then the book of Exodus starts, and we're told that the Israelites have grown from one family to be great in number, but they're not a free nation. They're slaves of Pharaoh. The Israelites cry out to God. God raises up Moses, and by many miraculous acts, Moses, by the power of God, leads these people out. And it's been told for generations, and I'm telling you today, God redeemed Israel. They were helpless, and they were oppressed, and God brought them out of that oppression. And so we read this verse in in verse 7 and say, why do I need redemption? Well, Jesus told us in John chapter 8 that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Jesus did not come and set us free from, he didn't lead the Israelites out from uh, this oppression from Rome, but what did he do? He told us of our spiritual oppression, that I was born into sin and that I am a slave of Satan. You can tell somebody's biblical worldview very quickly how they respond to that statement. Because the world believes if I am not a Christian, I am serving myself. I am worshiping myself. And that's not a biblical worldview at all, y'all. If apart from Christ, I'm a slave to my sin and I serve Satan's agenda because I can do what I think is best for me, but all of us apart from Christ will reap the reward of Satan as a master, the wages of sin, which is death. And Jesus says, I came to free you from a spiritual oppression. I need redemption because I'm a slave to sin. One thing that means for us, y'all, is that apart from Christ, I can't not sin. I can't serve my own agenda. Apart from Christ, I can't work my way up to become a pretty good person. And so many of us have tried on our own power and we find ourselves in a cycle of unbreakable sin because we recognize that we're in chains and we cannot be free. And Paul declares the ministry and the work of the Son was to set us free and to lead us out of Egypt. We have a spiritual slavery, and and, and Christ came to bring us redemption in that regard. But when I talk about slavery, sometimes that that word doesn't imply personal responsibility, right? Because we look at someone who's enslaved as as a victim, right? Let's just say I was walking around downtown Winterville one night, and a guy pulled up with a white van, offered me some candy, and I love candy, so I get in, and I get kidnapped. And you guys all hear that Liam's been kidnapped. And y'all being the the wonderful church family that you are, you get your torches and you get your pitchforks, right? And you guys come and you redeem me out of that broken situation. And we all come back and meet here for some reason. Would you guys be looking for me to apologize? No. Did I do really anything wrong? I was a victim. And yes, we have been victimized by sin, y'all, but notice the second description of our sin in this passage, and it does imply personal responsibility. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. I need redemption because I'm a victim, but I need forgiveness because I've been the villain, because I have trespassed God's holy law. The word trespass means to step the wrong way. And so many of us have shook our fist in the face of God and say, God, I know the right thing to do, yet I'm going to go serve somebody else. Think about the story of the Israelites being led out of Egypt. This was a nation who had enjoyed the power of God. They had been freed to love God, freed to be a nation, freed to live the right way. And God is taking them through the wilderness. He takes them to Mount Sinai. Moses goes on top of the mountain, and God gives him a law. 
God says, hey, I'm going to teach you my holy standard. I'm going to teach you how to love me. I'm going to teach you how to love other people. And Moses is like, this is great. We've been freed by God. And he goes down the mountain with the tablets. And what are the nation of Israel doing? They've taken their gold jewelry and they fashion for themselves a golden calf. And they start worshiping another God. And church, I hope we see ourselves in the, in the Israelites. Because we have been let out to be freed the right way, but even freed, y'all, we've still fallen to sin. I need redemption and I need forgiveness. And we see our condition as a comprehensive failure to please the Father. And so the Father sent the Son for our redemption and our forgiveness of our trespasses. We talked about our our sin apart from Christ. Next, I want to talk about um, the Father's grace through Christ. Our sin apart from Christ. Father, grace through Christ. How do I have access to this redemption and to this forgiveness? In verse 7, he tells us, in Christ through the blood. I have redemption in Christ through the blood. Now, that word in Christ, y'all, is used about five times in verses 3 through 15. Paul says, you want to be right before the Father, you have to be in Christ. Now, I think some of us, we even said that to each other. It would sound a little bit strange, right? We would say more things like, I'm a Christian, or I'm saved. Those terms are not used in the New Testament nearly as often as the term in Christ, which is used over 75 times. And the witness of the New Testament is that if you want to be saved, if you want to be right before the Father, you need to be in Christ. If I'm not in Christ, if I'm not joined to him, then I'm still in my sin, then I'm still a slave. Union with Christ is a wonderful way, y'all, and I think we should honestly change our vocabulary a little bit about how we talk about salvation. Because if we don't talk about it as being joined to Christ, people might think we're saying you need to be joined to a church. You need to be joined to a small group. You need to be joined to a community. Y'all, this this doesn't save anybody, right? I can't save anybody. We have redemption in Christ alone. We have redemption in Christ through the blood We have redemption in Christ through the blood that the Son came to deal with our sin, and it wasn't pretty, right? Because my sin deserved death. And Jesus Christ was willing to take my penalty and die the death that I deserve. And when we look at the cross, y'all, we need to recognize that was my death. That was my penalty, that we have redemption in Christ through the blood. And sometimes, y'all, the blood is uncomfortable to talk about or uncomfortable to sing about as we just did. In church, we might feel tempted to rewrite this verse, to to produce or or elevate a a works-based gospel to say that I have redemption, I have forgiveness in my work because of how many times I served in kids or how many times I preached a good sermon or how much money I gave to somebody. And we might say, well, I have redemption in Liam through my works because our pride grows. Church, I want to challenge you and I want to urge you, never go looking for God's approval in any other place than the blood. And the blood applied to our lives. Jesus address this exact thing in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, one of the most bone-chilling passages of Scripture that I know of in the Bible. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus tells us that one day people will stand before him and they will appeal to their resume and say, Lord, look what all these things I did in your name. And the father will say to them, I don't know you because the blood isn't on you. I don't care about your works. I don't care about your resume. You don't look like my son. And therefore, I cannot accept you. Church, we have access to the grace of God in Christ through the blood. One of the questions I think sometimes we ask about the grace of God is to what extent am I saved? Right? If, we, if, we, if we lower our view of God to where we're not trusting him like we should because we haven't seen him in his word, then we start to ask questions like, to what extent am I really saved? Can God really have enough grace for me? And I want you to check out in verses seven and eight how the grace of God is described. We've talked about how to access it in Christ through the blood. Next, I want to talk about how we access the grace of God, or excuse me, the description of the grace of God. It says, according to, in the end of verse seven, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So how is the grace of God in Christ described? He's rich in it and he's lavished it on us. Last week, Dustin talked in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he talked about how um, that passage and talks about how Paul had a thorn in his flesh, right? Something was going on with Paul. We're not exactly sure. And he really wanted God to take it away from him. He says he prayed three times, God, take it away. And because Paul had enough faith, God took it away, right? No. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. The Father looked at him and said, I could heal you, but I'm not going to. You're going to live with that. And my power will be perfected in your strength, weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. I want us to think about those two descriptions, 2 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 1, of God's grace. It's sufficient and it's lavish. Sufficient means enough, right? It's enough for you. It's not too little. It's just right. It's enough. But what about the word lavish? What does the word lavish mean? I think the best way to describe lavish is a very familiar biblical picture that we see in Psalm 23. My cup runs over, right? Lavish means I have enough and more than enough. There's some left over that God is pouring blessings or grace into our lives and we can't contain them all. This word lavish is very descriptive and um, so it may lead us to ask, I did this week as I was studying, uh, how many times do we see this word in the New Testament? In your English Bibles, most likely, depending on what translation you have, you see it in one other place in the New Testament. And it's in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 1. If you were doing discipleship essentials and you looked at the chapter on adoption already, you studied this passage. It says, see what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, right? Talking about our adoption in the family of God. So there we see that the love of God was lavished on us. It works very similarly. Would you believe, though, that this word is actually used in the New Testament 38 times? This word that describes lavish. No, no other place in our English Bible do we see it translated as lavish because it's not used as a verb. He lavished something. He poured out something in great measure. It's used as a noun or an adjective, and it's described as surplus or excess. 
And so that's why we don't see this word used very often. But in the Greek, we see it a lot through the New Testament. And I want to show you in one place, we could actually look in four places because it's in all four Gospels that this word is used. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you just quickly to turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 14. Um, very familiar story, very familiar passage talking about the lavish grace of God. The same word is used in Matthew 14. Um, actually, all four Gospels have the feeding of the 5,000. Um, Jesus was teaching a massive crowd, and we know that he miraculously uh, fed all these people. Matthew 14, uh, verses 15 through 21. Matthew 14, 15 through 21. Just a clear, or just a, a glance at the passage, that last verse in verse 21. We call it Jesus feeding the 5,000, but it says that the crowd was bigger than 5,000 people, right? We're told that uh, he fed 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children, which, I mean, it honestly makes sense. I mean, that feeding of the 5,000 is a little bit of a more catchy title than feeding of the 5,000 besides women and children, right? Um, it works a little bit better. But this could have been, if this was families of four, this could have been as big as 20,000 people that Jesus had to feed. Honestly, from 5,000 to 20,000, it's, it's a miraculous anyway, right? Let's read this passage starting in verse 15, Matthew 14, 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Jesus is teaching the crowd. It gets to be time to eat. Disciples say, hey, maybe we should have like a lunch break, dinner break, let them go out in the cities and buy food. And what does Jesus say? He says, you feed them. Jesus got a little bit of an attitude. <laughs> he knows they can't. He knows he's about to. And yet he says, you feed them. Disciples say, we can't. What do they say? In verse 17, they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. Looking at this massive crowd and saying, we have to feed 15,000, whatever number of people it is, and we've got enough food for maybe two, three people. We don't have enough resources. Verse 18, and he said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the two fish, or excuse me, breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. Look with me one more time at verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. What Jesus did was sufficient for the people. Then they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. That word leftovers, if we wanted to translate it in light of Ephesians 1, it would be acceptable to say, and they picked up the lavish surplus, 12 baskets full. Y'all, the grace and the provision of God is sufficient and it's lavish. The disciples look at this crowd they know their resources, and they know there is no way that they can satisfy these people, much less lavish anything on these people. I look at my sin, and I see a holy God. I know my resources, and I know there is no way I can satisfy God, much less lavish anything or give him anything of worth. But Jesus had enough from the power of his blood and the riches of his grace to satisfy God and lavish God with righteous living. That's why in Philippians 2, it says he's been given a name that's above every other name. And church, if we are in him, 
through the blood, we have access to the sufficient and lavish grace of God. There's more where that came from in Christ. In verses 9 10, I want us to talk about the last thing uh, this morning. We talked about our sin apart from Christ. We talked about the Father's grace in Christ. Then finally, verses 9 and 10, I want to talk about the Father's plan in Christ. Father's plan in Christ. Let's read, starting actually in the last part of verse 8. It says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Church, there's a plan, and it's the Father's plan. I hope you realize that, and that's really what I want us to see as we define those he's and the hymns. But you notice how much that the Father is mentioned in verses 7 through 10, right? And so many of us, we try to reconcile this and understand, but, but I'm just here to report to you the Trinity the way that the Bible reports it, right? And we're told that we have access to the Father's grace in Christ, and that it was the Father's plan to send the Son, and Jesus, the Son, submitted to the Father in that plan. And now we, that's kind of emphasizing a distinction in the Trinity, but they're, they're all one, right? Um, and so I don't understand all that works, right? We just stop there, and we're just faithful with the biblical witness to say that this is the Father's plan. Notice in verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, what that tells us is that sending Jesus was not plan B, right? This was a plan that was exacted with surgical precision. God was never out of control. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. It wasn't made up as we went along throughout the Old Testament with different prophets. This was the plan of God, and God was just revealing to it to us as we went along. In verse 9, it was the Father's kind intention which he purposed in him. Other versions say he set forth in him, or he began in him. Verse 10, though, with a view. That's talking about the first coming, right? That he set forth something in Christ, in the blood. But all of this was happening with a view in the future to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. In church, I think so many times we, we emphasize the past ministry of Christ and we neglect the present and future ministries of Christ. In church, we're told here that there is a future plan and therefore we can have a future hope in Christ. In the city of Ephesus, um, which is the town where this letter was written, there was a statue in the center of the city. Um, I think it was called the Fountain at Ephesus. And it was of the Emperor Trajan. It was 20 feet high. Enormous statue. People would have seen it as they're, you know, walking, doing their, doing their normal stuff during the day. And it was of the Emperor. He's saying that he's looking all majestic. And under his right foot was a globe. And the claim was clear that the city of Ephesus was making. And that was Emperor Trajan was in control of the entire world. The irony of that is that today, Emperor Trajan is dead. And that statue is no longer standing. And the only reason we know it was there is because historians have written about that statue. But we serve a God who is alive today. And he has claimed 
that all of heaven and earth is his. He has all authority. And this plan is something that gives us incredible hope for today, that we sit here today as we elevate our view of God and worry and fear should disappear because we know that the Father has a plan. And in a word, it is to sum up all things under the authority of Christ. He says all things in the heavens and in the earth. In Genesis 1.1, our, our Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, many of us, uh, we read that, and, and maybe we just have this different idea of heaven. We think that earth is the planet we live on, and the heavens are the, is the space where Jupiter and Pluto and where all the planets and almost planets are, right? But that's not what the biblical authors meant when they used the term heavens. They were describing the two places of creation. The earth is our space. It's the space that we can touch, that we can see. Heaven's God's space. And they're all God's space. Maybe I should say that, right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But, but I haven't been to heaven. Heaven isn't just where Jupiter is. It's further than that. It's above that. I don't know where it is, but I know how to get there. Amen. John 14, through the sun. Heaven's different than earth. That's what the Bible tells us. Different. I want to tell you three ways heaven's different than earth. First one is God's presence is undeniable. There's no apologetics happening in heaven. There is no atheist in heaven. James said in James 2 that the, even the demons believe in shudder, right? They know. Like, it's not even a question for them. It's not a debate. God's presence is undeniable. We're told in heaven that God is worshipped continually, that there are angels, there are elders, there are creatures that would blow our minds just to see them and hear them described in the book of Revelation that are worshiping, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. They're not arguing whether or not God exists, and they are worshiping him continually. Think about it. Heavenly praise for a holy God for an earthly mission. They're praising God for the thing he did for us. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is this God who redeemed mankind in the power of the gospel. God's presence is undeniable. God is worshiped continually. And the other one that we see, as far as we know, y'all, sin is not tolerated in heaven. The only time we ever know of someone even like trying to sin against God in his space was Satan. And Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I like that description. It's not like I saw Satan fall like a feather. I saw him fall like lightning, bam, crater in the ground. Where's Satan today? He's on earth, y'all. He's not tolerated in God's presence. Heaven sounds like a nice place, doesn't it? I'm not there here on earth. And on earth, babies are aborted. Russia invades Ukraine. Husbands that we trust in the Christian community leave their wives. We just seem like we can't get along down here. And people fail us, and there's uncertainty, and circumstances produce worry in our lives. And we learn, yearn, and we groan, and we long to be in a place not like earth, but like heaven. And we feel separation between heaven and earth. And the reason that us as believers, we feel separation and we feel this tension is because we know the truth of the gospel. And we recognize that God has given us a spot in heaven. But we're not there yet. We're still here. 
Many of us feel that. Man, I wish God would do more for me. I wish I could unlock more of his blessings. Church, we've, we've been given everything in Christ. We just haven't realized all of it yet because he hasn't come back yet. Notice what it says in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ. Colossians 1, 3 through 5, uh, Paul starts his letter the same way. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Y'all, we've been given everything in Christ. We shouldn't ask for anything more. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place in Christ. We just haven't realized all of it yet because he hasn't come back yet. Church, we see in verse 10, there is a plan. D.A. Carson in his commentary said that when Christ comes back, he will knit heaven and earth together and there will no longer be any separation between where I am now and the blessings of God in Christ. Isn't that exciting? He's coming back to knit heaven and earth together. Church, at the, there's a plan. We're all headed to the same point in history as the center of that plan is Christ. And if you are in him through the blood, you have an inheritance with him. And he's coming back to realize that fully. Church, there is a plan. In Revelation 21, verse 1, John describes Jesus coming back and establishing this new heaven and new earth. And one thing that he says that gives people a lot of trouble is that there will no longer be any sea. You guys know he said that? He said, and the sea is no more in Revelation 21.1. Now, I hold personally to the literal interpretation of that passage. I believe that if John says there will be no more sea, then there's not going to be any more sea. We're told there's a river of life, so maybe it's got some waves. I don't know. No more sea. I'm going to hold to the literal interpretation. But you can understand why some people would not hold to the literal interpretation of that passage because they love the beach and Revelation is just a crazy book, right? Which if you held to everything in Revelation, literally, you know, that, that's pretty hard to reconcile, that, that there is some poetic meaning to Revelation. That, that's not a, a bad thing to say considering the inerrancy of God's word. But what some people will point to when John wrote that there is no more sea is that when John wrote this Revelation, he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He had rebelled against the Roman Empire, right, by preaching the gospel. And so they put him on an island. And he's writing about heaven. And he says, there will be no more sea. And in exile, the sea is the thing that separated him from everything that he loved. Church, I don't really hold to that interpretation, but I think it is faithful to the biblical witness that when Jesus comes back, separation will be gone. That I want to stand before him. I want to stand before Christ, the one who purchased my redemption and gave me forgiveness. I want to stand before him. And, and God's word is amazing, y'all. We should live in this word, right? It is the bread of life that we come to and nourish, but we're not walking with him. I want to walk with him. I feel that separation in Christ. We have been sealed sufficiently and lavishly with the Holy Spirit, y'all. But when he comes back, we're going to see him. I think many of us, maybe even today, we think a little bit about the separation that we have from our family members who have gone on before, maybe a mother. Separation from the people we love who are in heaven, who have realized some of that inheritance. Y'all, there'll be no more separation in heaven with those people as well. See or not, we will be with God. We'll be joined with him, enjoying fully what God intended before the foundation of the world, he said, I choose them and I'm sending.
Christ. Finally, just church, in, in, in summation, we have no excuse to worry because we serve a very big God. And so your application today is three things, and I'm just calling you to rest. Don't be afraid. Learn to live at peace. I think it was Irenaeus with the church fathers who said that we are a people of faith seeking understanding. And what that means is in those times of worry and panic and fear, what we do is we say, I feel all kind of emotion inside me, but I will put on my glasses of faith to see the world before I understand. I'm gonna trust in the character of God before I fully understand. Church, we can rest for three reasons. First, we can rest because he has poured out his blood. I have redemption and forgiveness because of the blood of Christ. Second, we can rest in his grace, that he has sufficiently and lavishly poured out his grace on us in Christ. And finally, we can rest in his plan, that he's coming back and that separation will be no more. I want to leave you with this, Psalm 27, verse 1. I think David said it pretty well. When we consider the work of Christ, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Church, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, that you have sufficiently and lavishly saved us, God. That we can be secure in the finished work of Christ. Father, I pray that the blood would be enough for your people. God, we would see your work as complete and full and sufficient. Father, I pray that you would fix our eyes on the future. God, that we would see that there is a plan to redeem the world in Christ, Father. Lord, that we would live for your glory waiting for that hope that is reserved for us one day in heaven. God, would you be with your church? Would you strengthen these people? God, would you increase our influence in in Athens? Father, I pray that more people would know of the grace of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank y'all so much for coming. Y'all are dismissed.